Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex, and today we're talking about price, the price of entry in a market where the average cost of a new car is perilously close to 50 grand. Alex, where do we start? Yeah, let's uh, let's start by talking about that perilously close part. I was shocked by this. Apparently the cost average MSRP for the average new car in America, according to Kelly Blue Book just a few months ago, nearly hit $48,000. And that's slightly down from December 2021, where things were at their absolutely bonkers peak. And if you're in the market for a pickup truck, be prepared to spend around $62,000, because that's the average price for a new pickup truck. Um, just before we dive into some of these options, I also want to say, perhaps some people are saying, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm looking for more of a family kind of car. The average midsize SUV in America, about $47,000. The average midsize stand about thirty-two. Let's talk about some of the alternatives that shoppers can look for, bearing in mind that cars are bigger and faster and fancier than ever before. You may be able to step down a size and get the same kind of vehicle that you might really be looking for. Uh, so the first one I have is one that we recently dro uh, drove, the Corolla all-wheel drive, which is about as big as a Camry from just a few decades ago. $24,200 gets you 48 MPG and all-wheel drive. Now, what's interesting to me here is that the Corolla Hybrid all-wheel drive actually gets slightly worse fuel economy than the previous model. Is this just because it got a power hike, or is it being targeted towards a more mature buyer looking for a more substantial vehicle who's maybe mm -hmm. willing to lose some of that fuel economy to gain a little bit of power and drivability? Yeah, excellent question. Toyota was not overly specific on why the all-wheel drive model lost fuel economy. It could be some measurement differences with the front-wheel drive to front-wheel drive model, or it could have been some of the platform changes required to make the all-wheel drive system work in that optional model. <clears throat> so if you get the front-wheel drive version, you'll get around 50 miles per gallon combined. The all-wheel drive drops that down to 48, 47, or 44, depending on exactly how you equip your Corolla. Still pretty high, though. I will say this, it's probably worth the hit you take because you're talking about a vehicle that has only 134 horsepower, it gets a 13 horsepower bump. Torque is up 51 pound feet. That's the difference you can really feel in a car that size. Of mm -hmm. course, there have been price increases, but all things considered, the pricing is quite reasonable and you're still getting a very high level of fuel economy. Um, you're gonna get EPA ratings combined of about 47, meaning if you are parsimonious, if you're even, if you have even a sense of hypermiling in the most abstract, you're probably <laughs> going to get close to 50 miles per gallon. Like you should be able to do that in this car. If you're not interested in getting fuel economy and you just want to ride pedal to the metal, this probably isn't the car for you to begin with. True. But it's one of the few that will have all-wheel drive. So if that's something that you're interested in, period, this should be on your shopping list. The only other entry in this segment with all-wheel drive currently in the U.S. is the uh, the Subaru Impreza. And I was surprised. The Impreza appears a lot less expensive, but when you look at that base Impreza, it's really stripped down. You don't get any of the active safety tech. You don't get an automatic transmission, etc. So comparably equipped to the Corolla, it's about the same price, but the Corolla will save you about six to $800 a year, depending on how how much you're paying for gas. Okay. Now, what about something like a Subaru Crosstrek hybrid? Is that even like a reasonable alternative or are they apples and oranges? 
little bit more apples and oranges. I would say the Crosstrek hybrid, since it is a plug-in hybrid, it, it, the price tag is a little bit tricky for me. The range is a little low. The fuel economy is not great. We are going to see an all-new version here really soon. So I would hit the pause button on that because the current one, uh, technology is a little bit old. Let's just put it that way. And the next generation model is likely going to improve on all of that. If you don't need all-wheel drive, I would suggest taking a look at the new Nero. You can get 53 miles per gallon for 26490 So that's probably going to be more pragmatic for a lot of folks out there. A little bit lower on the, the price tag, depending on the configuration you're looking at. Significantly higher fuel economy. I'm also one of those guys who always cross-shops used cars because that's the business I'm in. I'm in pre-owned watches. I always look for the bargain. I would say looking at a... 50 to 100,000 mile Prius all-wheel drive is definitely a viable option if you're interested in this class of car with all-wheel drive and that level of fuel economy. You're going to have more interior volume. You're going to have the convenience of the hatchback. You may have to accept miles, but I don't think that 50 to 100,000 on a modern car is the death knell it would have been in, say, 1995. I don't think we think... <clears throat> I don't know. The monthly payments are probably going to be lower on that brand new Corolla all-wheel drive hybrid, and it's going to have a 40-horsepower motor on the back, not a 7-horsepower motor. So it's it's going to feel like all-wheel drive, and the, the Prius doesn't really. I would say yeah. if you want to save cash, there are some really good new car values right now that oh, yeah. are going to be not far off a used car. For instance, the Nissan Versa is still going to be around for 2023. It got a refresh. And uh, its price tag is probably going to go up, but the current one starts at 15580 So very, very inexpensive for a reliable, you know, fuel-efficient people mover that is no frills. It's yeah, definitely I, cheap and cheerful. <laughs> I, I definitely agree with you that the Prius all-wheel drive is a get-me-moving type all-wheel drive. Not, not an all-wheel drive that changes the driving experience. This is supposed to get you out of the snow, basically. That's the only purpose of that mm -hmm. Um, but I'd also say that realistically, you know, we, we've got quite a few options and we've got quite a few cars on our list. You might want to consider something like, uh, well, let's just talk about the Trailblazer, for example. Mm -hmm. If you want to make that move from a car to an SUV, that's a great entry point. It is. I really like the Trailblazer. It has become a little bit more expensive for 2023 because Chevy has introduced probably a, an even better value, really, with the new Trax. A lot of folks thought the Trax was going to sail off to the sunset. They didn't. They just grabbed an other world market vehicle, jammed it in the lineup as the American Trax, and started it at $21,495, which is really, really cheap. Um, it's a lot bigger than the Corolla Hybrid. So if you're looking for a roomier, hatchback-y, crossover-y thing, you might want to take a look at the Trax. It's actually pretty big for a subcompact. It's really more of a you know, RAV4 size from just a few years ago sized vehicle on the inside. And even if you get all of the options, it's going to top out under $25,000. Now, what's interesting to me is that they took a world product and it didn't suck. Take a look at the Ford EcoSport <laughs> workout. This genuinely impresses me because crossovers have not been GM's strong suit. Honestly, it seems regardless of the brand, Buick, Cadillac, Chevrolet, they always seem to be offering some mid-pack product at best. So it surprises me that an entry-level cost-sensitive product would be a standout to you because mm -hmm. you've seen them all. I think that GM did not expect the Trailblazer to go quite as well as it did, so they realized this is the formula for success. Uh, the Trailblazer is fantastic, honestly. If you want a CVT, there's one. If you want a 9-speed, there's one for you. If you want all-wheel drive, front-wheel drive, etc. It is incredibly practical on the inside and really, really inexpensive. 
GM really seems to also be interested in pushing these in terms of volume. So while there are a lot of cars that are hot out there right now that have huge dealer markups, it doesn't seem to be the case with the Trailblazer. Uh, inventory is still light on the ground, but we don't see that same sort of you know, $5,000 markup on MSRP on those vehicles. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is now we've got some overlap with the tracks, which is cheaper and bigger and in some ways more richly equipped. But there is a price you pay, especially if you're in the Northeast and that's all wheel drive. Yes, the lack of all wheel drive did surprise me. GM reminded me that uh, basically it's a price thing. They said that when they took a look at the Trailblazer lineup, the people that were buying all wheel drive were mainly buying upper end trims. So they kept those around. They tidied up the Trailblazer lineup to make it a bit more expensive. And then the tracks is filling out the bottom end for people that just want front wheel drive. There is a trade-off, and that trade-off is you get the six-speed automatic, not the CVT or nine-speed. GM said the six-speed was a lot cheaper to manufacture. You get the smaller engine that the Trailblazer also shares. You don't get the fold-flat front passenger seat. You get a slightly cheaper feeling interior. But I think it's really well done for the price tag. And any way you slice it, it feels better on the inside than the current generation Hyundai Venue, which is also in the same category. And the tracks is way, way, way bigger. What's also interesting is the starting price is just rock bottom. It's $21,495. Even if you upgrade to something like the RS, which is sportier, more loaded, you're going to be under $25,000. Same thing for the active You've got options for things like sunroof, automatic climate control, power driver's seat, adaptive cruise control. Uh, you can option an 11-inch touchscreen if you want. There are some big car features in here if you want to pay for them. And I imagine it would be awfully difficult to max one of these out to $30,000 even with options. Yeah, it's it, not even possible. They'll top out at $25,000, including destination, which is the shocking part. So it is a very inexpensive vehicle. The, the active and the 2RS trim are the two top-end models. There's some minor differences between the two, but both of them are just under $25,000 all in, plus, of course, your, your tax title license, etc. If you want to spend a bit more, though, you could get a Bronco Sport, which is about as roomy as a RAV4, even though it's technically a subcompact, uh, and it starts at $29,000. So you could get into something like that with a very practical cargo area, a bit of extra style for under $30,000. Uh, if you need three rows, though, your options are a little bit more limited. Okay, well, let's talk about those because I think most people don't associate three rows with bargains. Typically, a lot of folks think, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to have to buy some sort of a van, maybe a used three-row SUV. But there are some options new that you can buy with full warranty. And mm -hmm. I think Subaru is one of the most interesting on that front. Yeah, if you're looking for all-wheel drive, and a lot of folks are, then the Ascent has all-wheel drive standard for just over $32,000, plus, of course, the destination charge. And keep in mind, we just drove the new Highlander, and its price tag went all the way up to $36,000, just over, actually, starting for its uh, starting price. So significantly more expensive there. Uh, Honda Pilot, the other options in the segment that are large are also uh, on that high side. But Ascent is pretty roomy, all-wheel drive standard there for just under 33. Also, you can take a look at a Sorento, because that's one of the few that's under $30,000. Uh, its size categories always confuse shoppers because Kia has the larger Telluride. The Sorento is the same size on the inside as a Highlander. It's a tiny bit narrower in some dimensions, but roughly the same size as a Highlander inside. Similar cargo room, similar third row room, etc. But it's priced a bit more like a compact crossover than a midsize because then they have the supersized Telluride at the top end. I would also say realistically, if you're looking at a Sorento as a third row, 
you're looking at the third row as a bailout in an emergency. That is a very yes. compromised third row. So just keep mm -hmm. that in mind. That's not for adults, and it might not even be for bigger kids on the long haul. It's uh, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. If you if you see the Highlander and you put your teenager in the Highlander, you will be just fine in the Sorrento uh, because the third row dimensions are almost identical to Highlander. Similarly sized to Pilot as well. In the mid-sized three-row crossover segment, they they sort of separate into two categories. There is the Acadia, the Highlander, the Sorrento, and the Pilot on the small end of things, very equally sized third rows. Then we have the bigger set, the Traverse, the Atlas, the Telluride, the Palisade, etc., with a much more accommodating third row. But it's definitely more third rowy than a Tiguan with a third row or an Outlander. Those third rows are practically useless. That's definitely a fact. I would say realistically, looking at all these brands, you've definitely got options, but which ones are actually in stock? When I think Subaru, mm -hmm. I think waiting list. When I think Kia, especially with the SUVs, I think waiting list. What kind of vehicle are you likely to be able to find on a lot in the fall of 2022? Ah, good point. So we are probably going to be seeing a decent number of Neros. Also, the Trailblazer should be relatively easy to find. The Sorento, definitely a lot easier to find than the Telluride. It's been less popular since the Telluride rolled onto the scene. It wasn't designed as a replacement since the Telluride's much bigger, but a lot of folks that were buying it moved over to Telluride, so Sorento's relatively easy to find. The Subaru, definitely tricky. You're probably going to be on a waiting list, although it appears that most Subaru dealers are not raking the customers across the coals as far as MSRP increases. So it's probably going to transact closer to that base price than something like a Telluride. Um, you will probably find something in our next segment up here, trucks. You'll find a Ranger on the lot. You won't have any hope of finding a Maverick. Uh, so things like that you know, can, can help a, a shopper find a, a good alternative. The uh, Ranger is not going to be as fuel efficient as a Maverick, but it is going to be more capable. And interestingly, for 2023, it's only $4,000 more expensive. Um, I mean, admittedly, that's a you know 20% price increase for the Maverick versus its base price for 2023. But you could get into a Ranger for not too much more. Um, it'd be a bit bigger, a bit more capable if that's something you're looking for. But it's going to be a little bit less fuel efficient. Now, what do you think about a factory order at this point? Because it's been said that for folks who have the patience to wait, a factory order gives certainty to the dealer and it gives certainty mm -hmm. to the buyer. And the dealer is more likely to transact around MSRP, even if it's a desirable vehicle, if they get a factory order. This is true. So I personally prefer ordering because I want the exact thing that I want. It really depends on your priorities and how urgently you need the vehicle. My recommendation to everybody is buy the car around when you think you'll need the car, but not before you actually need it. You don't want to go into a dealership needing a car right now. You're always going to be in a better negotiating position wanting a car rather than needing a car, if that makes sense. Sometimes that doesn't work out quite right, but if you have the ability, you have the means, something wrong with your car, you want to take a road trip, rent a car for the road trip, rent a car for a week if you have to, so you can do some research, make an informed decision. That's always going to be better than any sort of rushed process. At the moment, ordering a car can be quite a lengthy process, mind you. So if you were to, for instance, want to order a Maverick for 2023, it's too late. They have already closed the order books for all of next year. If you wanted to order a Ranger, absolutely not a problem. That won't take as long. So it really just depends on the things that you're looking for. And also, it does make a difference where the car is made. If it has to take a transoceanic voyage, 
you're automatically going to tack on a couple of weeks. So that's something also to factor in, mm -hmm. especially on something like a Subaru. Yep. Oddly enough, depending on what it is and where it's coming from, though, shipping across the country at the moment is a little bit frazzled. So some of the Ford and GM products that are coming cross country may actually take longer if you live on the West Coast, I should say, uh, than if you live on the uh, in the Midwest or the East Coast and you're buying a Ford or a GM that was produced in or around Michigan, that might get to you faster. But if you're in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Oregon, etc., the Toyota or the Honda made in Japan might actually get it, get to you faster than the GM built in the U.S. And that's a subtext to price hikes right now and the general inflation of car prices. There's a small crisis. It's an industry within an industry of car transport. And logistically, a lot of major manufacturers, even within the U.S., are having trouble getting cars from factories to dealers to customers. Just keep that in mind and do a little bit of research because it, it can still affect domestic manufacturers. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the next thing I, we should close out the segment with would be, uh, what if you want luxury on the cheap? Say you have uh, caviar expectations and a tuna fish salad budget. Uh, what options can people gravitate towards? I have three picks. Let me know how you feel about these. Uh, if you're looking at something like a midsize luxury SUV, you could take a look at a Santa Fe calligraphy from Hyundai. Lots of the same features. Hyundai logo on the front. Less power, less dynamics, much lower starting price, just over 42 you could take it a Lincoln uh, Corsair instead of an X3 or a GLC. You get a slightly roomier interior for a lot less cash, about 38000 starting there. Or you could Lexus ES250 instead of really any midsize luxury sedan. It's going to be soft. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be comfortable. And it's going to start at 41. Yeah, and I'm going to remind everyone out there that a used Avalon or ES is still the best way to get yourself a modern-day Buick for less money. So <laughs> keep that in mind. I was really trying to avoid the Buick connotation here. <laughs> well, fair. Actually, if you want a really nice luxury car, go out and you buy yourself the last generation Buick LaCrosse, three years old. <laughs> smoking deal on that. Ah, but it's not going to have some of those fancier features. No heads-up display in that old LaCrosse. No, but all-wheel drives there if you want it. And there is a mild hybrid four-cylinder that's pretty decent for the size of the car. Remember... It's the very American essence of luxury. You're going to get a lot of it, but it's not terribly fine. Oh, my least favorite hybrid in the world. <laughs> All right. By the way, if you want to, if you want a style like a king, then the used American luxury car to buy is that last generation Lincoln Continental. Ah, um, uh, yes. Get the twin turbo V6. The coach door version is expensive as hell. You're not getting one of those cheap. You can go out and get yourself a lovely black label from four years ago and drive around like the king of the place and like the American Audi A8 wannabe. From affordability to unaffordability, it's interesting to say that this year, Tesla prices have increased 31%. And one of the reasons they have that pricing power uh, is the simple fact that they distribute their cars themselves. So is Tesla's real impact killing the franchise dealer, given what we've heard about the revival of Scout, about Sony Honda Mobility, about Ford selling cars online, even if it ultimately distributes through the dealer, Tesla electrified the world. All these electric cars are happening only because of the success of the Model S. That's undoubted. But is the long-term impact going to be their effect on the franchise model once everyone has electric cars? I am curious. Um, 
You know, sorry for anybody out there that's listening and owns a car dealership, but I am not the biggest fan of dealers and the franchise dealer model. I think it's a little outdated and definitely due for a revision. I think that's more what we're seeing is a revision of this because the fact of the matter is 98, 99% of new cars sold in the US were sold through a franchise dealer and they will continue to be sold through a franchise dealer in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years because franchise dealer contracts are very long in nature and they're very difficult to terminate. Uh, Porsche tried it in the 90s, Chrysler gave it a whirl in the 2000s. There is no escaping these franchise arrangements for manufacturers that already have them outside of trying to launch new brands and either redefine the franchise arrangement like we see with Polestar or attempt to side skirt it like we may or may not see with Sony Honda. It's interesting that Sony and Honda have not been overly specific about how those models will be sold in the United States. It's also true that there are a lot of state laws that effectively write the franchise model into state law in blood, which is the basis for a lot of states where you can't purchase a Tesla directly, as well as a number of mm -hmm. ongoing lawsuits. So, although I would say the franchise is definitely robust and durable, at least in the moment, it does seem like we're seeing more challenges to this model than at any other point in living memory. Like if you can remember auto sales in the 40s and 50s, you probably still can't remember a time when there was this much controversy about how a car would be sold. And that's just <laughs> new cars. That's not the Carvanas of the world. Right. I, I agree that we're seeing a lot of controversy and we're seeing motion. We just don't seem to be seeing any actual progress. If by progress, we mean termination of franchise agreements. Uh, there's there's no progress in that that respect. And I think that's why manufacturers like Volvo, who really wanted to eliminate or change the dealership model drastically around the world, may be able to change that other markets, but they have not been able to do that in the US. So we we see Polestar, for instance, their, their performance EV sub-brand being sold through a dealership network that is a heavily modified dealership arrangement versus what we see with Volvo, for instance, in the US. Um, exactly how we see other things going is going to be tricky. We know that Rivian is basically trying to duplicate Tesla's success. They're probably going to be the next highest volume manufacturer without a dealer network in the US. And uh, we'll see if that really adds any traction to this. But from a, a political standpoint, political level, which is very important since there's so many laws that govern the way these deals work, Tesla and Rivian just don't have the collective power and lobbying ability that every other dealership in America has at the moment. Well, let's take a look at something they have that other dealerships don't have. Tesla has an enormous factory outside of Austin. It's a manufacturer. It's going to have a level of presence and employment impact that no individual dealer or even association of dealers is going to have in a state like Texas where it's not allowed to directly sell a car in the conventional sense. Over time, does that kind of political power, Rivian, for example, is building massively in Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, tech, you know, Tesla is building their latest gigafactory in Austin. It's almost up and running where they want it to be. Not where they want it to be, but it's getting there. At some point, does the fact that these companies are also manufacturers as well as vendors give them a counterweight to the power of dealership associations? I'm not sure because remember, they're still very small. So as big as Tesla might be and as impressive as their Gigafactory might be, if General Motors is on target by 2024, they will produ be producing about four times the number of batteries as Tesla. Uh, admittedly, 
assuming they're on target. Uh, Mary Barra's, you know, we are the leader in EVs maybe one day. That's the projection. Definitely not now, but it is on the cusp of happening. Those factories are right about to turn online here soon. So that will be interesting to see. And I think that's kind of the critical thing is what happens to this model after some of the excitement goes away because other manufacturers are playing in the same space? And what do traditional legacy manufacturers like GM, like Stellantis, like Ford, what do they do as far as political push goes? Are they going to defend their dealer model, even though they're not really keen on it? Or are they going to attempt to kill their dealer model and fight with their own dealers in this process? It doesn't seem like anybody's willing to really fight the dealers. So they try and dance on this line. If Ford, GM, and Stellantis all came together and all had a huge political push to try and kill the dealer network, I think that would make it stop. But again, you know, if we're looking at Tesla and Rivian sales combined, we're talking less than 2%, way less than 2% of the automotive sales in the US for 2022. So probably not a big impact. But we have seen some legacy automakers uh, try a few different things. There are two things going on right now. One of them is buyouts of dealers, dealers mm -hmm. that don't want to be EV dealers. They're getting buyouts from Ford. They're getting buyouts from GM, uh, particularly on the Cadillac front. GM is looking to buy out dealers that don't want to make that transition. Ford's buying out dealers. It will give them an opportunity to buy back in at some point in the future, which is a little bit different. But for the most part, I would say the dealers that exit the business and take on different franchises probably aren't coming back to Ford. So there's that notion that you can buy out your dealer network and use the profits from you know, the fat times and the full mm -hmm. you know, order books to reduce their leverage. Uh, the other thing we're seeing is um, that Volkswagen is relaunching Scout, which once upon a time was a sub-brand of International yeah. Harvester. And frankly, I was surprised to know that Volkswagen even owned that <laughs> name. Yeah. But they're going to be launching that as a freestanding brand structure for Volkswagen, which effectively has nothing to lose in the U.S. market a full SUV and truck brand that sells nothing but all electric with no existing franchise base, apparently is going to be making direct sales if you believe what has been swirling about. So this is a mm -hmm. fairly large commitment by a legacy yeah. manufacturer to simply wipe the slate clean, launch a new brand and use that as its base to build towards the future. Yeah, there are two moving parts that we probably ought to, ought to say too. Yes. Um, GM and Ford trying to reduce their dealer network is not overly surprising because they've had an outsized dealer network for quite some time. And when you take a look at their sales per dealership, they really do need to cut their number of dealers. So I think that that, that cut and that attrition should happen anyway. And I think that the EV push is a good way to try and pare the numbers down. We'll see how that trans how that works long term with cars being more reliable than ever before dealerships are not having as many new cars under warranty that are being warranty repaired or even out of warranty repairs etc so the dealership model does need to change as far as dealerships servicing a larger geographic area that same number shrinking down we probably don't need 20 ford dealers in the san francisco bay area we probably could be fine with maybe three or four so we have a long way to go before we have uh, uh, that kind of reduction, of course. And I'm, I'm being hyperbolic for people that are counting their dealerships on a map, by the way. Um, <laughs> the next thing is I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to see what Volkswagen actually does because the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And when Polestar launched in the U.S., there was this big rumor that Polestar would be manufacturer direct here. 
And what actually happened was a heavily modified franchise dealer arrangement because they decided it would be too painful to really try the Tesla thing where you can't do direct sales in every state in the US. So they decided not to have a blended model with company sales and dealership sales. And they just decided to go for a heavily modified dealership arrangement. Something like that, I think, would work with Volkswagen because they have the footprint and the the, the shipping network, et cetera, and, and, uh, and just stock facilities, et cetera, to be able to make such an arrangement work. Um, but I'm sure that in, in Europe, it's going to be direct. Now, another legacy automaker, Honda. Honda's actually got a couple of different, um, I guess they've got a couple of different projects going in parallel in terms of EV projects with different partners. But the one that struck me was Honda Sony Mobility, precisely because uh, these vehicles are not necessarily going to be sold within Honda's 1100 dealer network in the United States. So Volkswagen apparently is trying to sidestep its franchise dealers with Scout. And there's at least the potential that Honda could sidestep its, frankly, fairly trim, lean and, and properly sized dealer network using this yeah. Sony Honda Mobility label. Now, these cars are probably three to four years away. I like the look, though. They do look very nice, but if you ask me, I don't know, some of these EV shapes, it's like a Polestar 3 is a Chrysler Airflow is a Sony Honda. Like, I, I'm losing the, the plot a little bit here. We're getting off topic, but uh, stylists, please. I, I know this is all dictated by aerodynamics, but do something stupid from an engineering standpoint and make them <laughs> cool from a style standpoint. But it is a big challenge to the dealer model if Honda decides to take this jump, because unlike Volkswagen, mm -hmm. Volkswagen has nothing to lose in the U.S. market. They're hitting the reset button with Scout. Honda actually has something to lose. Their dealers helped them get established on the West Coast in the 1970s, helped build them up as mainstream brands in the United States in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, Honda actually does have something to lose if they try to undermine their traditional network and the Honda brand. What does Honda Sony Mobility bring to the table that would inspire me to A, buy that vehicle over a standard Honda and B, buy it direct instead of going to a local dealer that I know well? Yeah, it's a uh, Honda Sony is another one that we don't know yet because there is a segment of the automotive punditry that says they will be sold through Honda dealers. And then there are a ton of dealers that are very vocal right now, worried that they're going to be left out in the cold. Which way it goes, we don't know. Uh, we do know, however, that if Sony Honda is structured as a separate corporation in the U.S., then they could do whatever it is they want. If, however, they are imported by Honda, the Honda Motors America, yes. if they're imported by Honda Motors America, then they will have to be most likely sold through franchise dealer arrangements. So we probably will know slightly in advance of the Sony Honda thing actually happening because some of those filings will have to happen at some point soon uh, to get things rolling. And franchises will probably know, they might not be able to tell us, but if you're a franchise dealer and you're worried, you'll probably know about a year or so before, because if there's a new dealer franchise, a franchise dealership agreement rather required, you'll have to sign it decently in advance of this contraption getting off the ground. Um, but I agree that is definitely a problem for a manufacturer like Honda that generally is considered to have good dealers and a, a positive dealership experience based on the numbers that we see out there on dealership reviews, et cetera. And again, a, a fairly small dealership network that doesn't need the pruning. So, uh, but then if I were Honda, 
to be perfectly honest, I would want complete control over my product without the dealers if I could. And here's the key, guys. If I'm in the watch industry and on one side of my company, we sell new watches. On the other side, we sell pre-owned. So I know that when the, the new watch hits the dealer, it's arriving at about 60% of MSRP. And if you're an auto manufacturer and you're selling a car to a dealer, which in turn needs to resell it to make a profit, you're allowing that dealer to build in much of the profit. So you're going to give them the car, who knows, 65, 70, 75% of, of retail. I'm just making up a number. Yep. If you could sell the car at retail as the manufacturer, all of a sudden that huge one third to 25% of the money the dealer brings in his MSRP, that's now yours. You capture all that value. Multiply that by 100,000, a million cars a year, and you're talking a serious chunk of change. So why would Honda do something that is borderline treacherous and undoubtedly going to be a trauma to everyone involved? Because a huge amount of money stands to be made. Yeah. And this is important to note. Although in theory, if Honda of America, you know, American Honda were to import these cars, it's true. Some of their dealer agreements would apply. But if these cars are going to be built in North America, as Honda has all but promised, that means it's going to be made in Mexico, Canada, or an American Honda factory that already exists. So who owns the factory? And is that the same thing as an American Honda import? Uh, American Honda does. So it would it would probably be in the same same contraption here. So if they set up a separate corporation in the U.S. and that corporation contracted the build of the vehicle back to Honda, then you could probably escape this. Uh, but if it's if it's all in the family, it's very unlikely that they would be able to do so. Okay. So it's going to be more like Acura, essentially interchangeable. Could be. As far as the law is concerned, Honda and Acura are one entity in the United States. So it would be right. like possibly. Yeah, it, okay. it, the question ends up being, is it is it Honda or Acura or is it Honda and General Motors where Honda's like, please build me uh, an Equinox that we're going to call a prologue and then I just sell that. Uh, obviously, that doesn't run afoul of any General Motors franchise dealership arrangements. So if it was that same structure with ha Sony, ha Sony, Sony Honda or Honda Sony, whatever we want to call this thing, uh, then logically it could fly. Um, I'm just I'm intrigued just to see how these machinations go down because these things are very complicated. But I would push back and say it's probably not going to be an enormous difference in revenue for the automotive manufacturer. I should say profit for the automotive manufacturer. Clearly, lots of revenue. But um, cars, new car sales are not necessarily incredibly high profit at the moment. The dealership clearly is making money. They have to to exist but they're not earning margins as high as some people might think on those vehicles. Remember, they have a lot of overhead. They they have the, the real estate that they have to pay for. They have the employees, the service departments, all that kind of stuff. There's definitely a lot of streamlining that could happen. That whole backroom finance office jazz, that could be done centrally online, and it could be so much better, like Rivian and Tesla have proved. Uh, and then they're just delivering car to you at the dealership, et cetera. But uh, as far as maximizing profit, it's probably not going to be a 20, 30% improvement on profit. It's oh, no. probably going to be single digits. But automakers deal with such huge revenues, not profits, but huge revenues. Mm -hmm. If you can capture even 5 to 10% more, that's an yeah. enormous aggregate of money. Um, yep. So definitely, I'm going to ask you one more question. because so we've got a sort of hybrid system now where Ford will sell you a Lightning or a Mustang Mach-E online, and then you take delivery through a dealer, but you fix the price in the process of buying online from Ford. How does that work? 
Well, fix is the yeah, that's the tricky bit. So, so you pre-order your your lightning. The order is pushed to the dealer, so the dealer is the one that has technically ordered it. So you pre-order, dealer actually gets the order from Ford. Dealer then places the order with Ford. The consumer is allowed to track it online for production, etc. Then the dealership is the one that prices the vehicle. Ford does not do this. Importantly, the okay. dealer then goes back into that same portal and puts the price tag that they're going to charge you in the portal for you to see. Then everything is above board. Then you go to the dealer and you finish the transaction. Paperwork gets done, etc., and is pushed through Ford Financial or, or or whoever you know is doing the financing and registration, etc., for the vehicle. But the important part is. Ford is merely the funnel. The dealership is the one that's selling you the vehicle. And because of the way franchise dealer arrangements work in the U.S., that actual sales price is up to the dealer. It is not at MSRP guaranteed. So then, what's the benefit of this to the customer? Because initially, I believed this was a system for limiting abusive price premiums on EVs and things mm -hmm. like asking people to put down outsized deposits or option up like i thought this was there basically to safeguard the reputation of ford against dealership abuse but it sounds like the dealer can still well abuse if it wants they can abuse it is it's designed to make things more upfront and easier for the consumer so before you had to go to a dealer and deal with that now you have this ability to put down your deposit it will be applied so the deposits effectively shuttled off to the dealer uh, so you you have the the ability to put a deposit on your credit card do the order have that order confirmed by the dealer without having to go in and and paperwork and then you have the ability to track it which you didn't have before so even recently ordering another vehicle there's outside of ford really i can't and obviously tesla and, and rivian but i can't think of any other manufacturer currently that has this ability to see you know when is my vehicle going to be produced and and what is the dealer going to charge me all in one portal that ford owner portal and that's kind of the interesting model that Ford is really trying hard to do. And sometimes it goes wrong because, you know, with our lightning, the dealer had initially said, oh, don't worry, it's not going to be a markup. Then on the portal, they typed in a $10,000 markup, and that's what they were asking for on the lightning. And it changed just one day, just all of a sudden, boom, there's a markup because the dealer changed their mind, which is a problem with the structure. And it took a lot of wrangling and arguing and uh, pointing back and forth before they actually removed the additional markup on that lightning. So it is not a foolproof process. That's the important thing. If you want absolutely dedicated pricing, the only way to do that is through a, a direct sales manufacturer. Um, close would be choosing a dealer that is committed to not mark up their vehicles. And there are a decent number of them. Okay, now there's also something else that's worth mentioning. We've been talking about EVs in the context of the obsolescence or potential obsolescence of the dealer franchise model. Um, but it's interesting to me that Ford has done this online ordering only for EVs. Um, in order to improve transparency, reduce paperwork and save time, but they haven't used the same process to try to prevent abuses of the pricing of popular vehicles like the Broncos or the standard F-150s or the Raptors or things that are being marked up yeah. usuriously. Why is it that Ford has only instituted this pipeline system for ordering and tracking your EV and, and they haven't really imposed the same system on other vehicles that are subject to abusive markups? Mm -hmm. 
Well, Bronco Bronco orders went through the same process. I will say that uh, Bronco Sport. I don't recall. I believe that it did. I'm sure someone will let us know in the comment section. But I believe Bronco Sport may have used the same process. Interestingly, they're not going to be using this process for Mustang, though. Okay. We know that already because I asked. Um, why they've chosen to go this direction seems to be the the relative balance of supply and demand here. Bronco is a much higher volume product, um, and so they believe that they they won't need that going forward. Because you notice they did it at the beginning. It's not like you're doing that now with Bronco, and with with Mustang, similar thing. They believe they're going to be able to produce sixty to ninety thousand Mustangs the first full year of production. Not going to be production limited in the same way uh, with outsized demand that we find in the other vehicles. Ford really underestimated the demand that that existed for Mustang Mach-E, and they've continued to struggle with that demand, similar with Lightning. Yeah, it's definitely something to think about, especially as a lot of crossover EVs prepare to come onto the market. We've seen everything from GMC, or not GM, GM Chevy Equinox EVs, which can be priced in the thirty dollars to $35,000 price range. You know, that Mustang Mach-E, theoretically available in the 40s, a lot of people are going to pay 50s mm -hmm. and 60s and do so happily. But as these vehicles become more and more mainstream, it'll be worth tracking whether the ordering process changes permanently or whether we eventually go back to a day when you just walk into a Toyota dealer, you expect to see popularly equipped vehicles yeah. in inventory and maybe even cash on the hood. Like the, the distortions of the last two years of the auto market make it difficult to separate the economic conditions yeah. of our time from actual structural changes in how dealerships work, how vehicles are in demand, how vehicles are sold. So we don't know the answer to that just yet. Expect this to be a multi-part feature on the channel. Um, Alex, if people want to find us, where can they find us online? You can find us at all of your favorite podcast places. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to us, you can find us on YouTube as the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. You can also find the main channel, Alex and Autos, over there on YouTube, the EV Buyer's Guide channel. You find us at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, every other social place you can imagine, except for Parlor. We are not on Parlor, and, uh, you know, I'm not sad about that. But at any rate, everywhere else, we're there. Yeah, anywhere Kanye is, we generally are. Toodaloo. Bye.